Thanks, Nicole. Hey, guys. How are we? Good to see you all here at Olsen Avenue. Uh, not our usual venue, but hey, cool that we've got a roof to meet over. Even if it's a little bit warm. As Joan said, hey, my name's Ben. Uh, we're working through one of the defining moments that's happened in my life, which is looking at Isaiah 40. It's a cracker passage. And really, I think uh, it helps you to understand what we're doing here. So this book, we believe this is the Word of God. And so every time we open it up, we expect it to be transformative in our lives. But there are particular moments and passages where the Spirit works powerfully through the Word uh, to bring about great moments of seeing God more clearly. And this is one for me in Isaiah 40. Uh, But to be honest with you, uh, you can see in your outlines there, I've called this sermon, Your God is Too Small. And if I'm honest, I wrote the sermon for me. Because there's been key moments in my life when I haven't seen God clearly, when I haven't seen him for who he is with all of his glory, and where I've had to come to his word and have him realign my thoughts, help me to see him for who he really is. And Isaiah 40 is one of those key passages for me. So growing up for me, I grew up in uh, the country, Nepal. My, My parents were missionaries there. If you didn't know that about me, I'm a missionary kid. And I saw God work in just all kinds of amazing ways. He worked to help people put their trust in Jesus, the greatest miracle that could ever happen. But alongside that, he worked to just this church community I was a part of were so full of love and care and generosity to those around them. It was just amazing to be part of. But then as a teenager, I moved back to Australia and slowly God started to kind of fade out of the central focus of my life. I think as I reflected on it as writing this sermon, God started just to become smaller and smaller until I saw him as optional. I started to think, well, hey, uh, I can get God's input in this situation, but I don't necessarily need to. I can go to church, but do I really want to? And to be honest, other things took the focus of my life. Stuff like parties, like sport, girls, just the the stuff that teenage boys are into. And, And God just kind of faded into the background. And I started to think, actually, to have a relationship with God was kind of take it or leave it. And I wasn't that interested to be honest. But towards the end of high school, I started going to a church again. And it was there that I came face to face with who God really is in a fresh way in my life. And actually reading through Isaiah 40 with a friend was a key part of that journey for me as I kind of came back to church and saw who God was. It's a passage that God's used throughout my life. And even uh, in the big moments, like where are we going to go and be uh, my wife and I when we're deciding where we're going to do pastoral ministry. Uh, and actually also in the small moments. Even this last couple of weeks, I've had moments where I felt frustrated or scared or um, just uncertain about the future. And those are the moments when I've come to a passage like this to remind me of who God is in those moments. It's a passage that preachers like Ray Ortland or Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones have used in my life. And so what I want to do with you guys for the next half an hour is think about God. Think about the God that is revealed in Isaiah 40, um, because I think that's one of the most important things that we can do as a church community. A.W. Tozer, he said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Do you get that? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. As we start 2024 and you're making your plans and goals for the year, the most important thing that's going to happen to you this year is not winning the lottery, going on a trip to Europe, getting that job promotion, starting that new relationship, but seeing God more clearly. Seeing Him for all of His glory and goodness, coming face to face with the living God. 
Because when we do that, when we can see God for who he is, all the other things in our lives kind of start to fall into place. And so that's what we're going to do tonight, is we're going to look at God and see who he truly is. So why don't I pray that he'd reveal himself to us now. Father God, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful that you make yourself known through it. And we pray tonight, whether we've never considered you before in our lives, or whether we've spent our whole lives considering you and following you, that you would give us a fresh transformative view of your glory tonight, that you would help us to center our lives on you in 2024, and you would use Isaiah 40 to show us more of your character and heart. We desperately want to see you, and we pray that you would show us yourself through your word tonight. Amen. Well, first uh, point in your outlines there, point one, the comforting God. (laughs) Up until this point in Isaiah's narrative... God's words to his people have mostly been words of judgment and rebuke. So Isaiah 1 to 39, uh, basically Israel are in rebellion against God. And, and the key thing that God has as a complaint against them uh, through his prophet Isaiah is that they continually fail to listen to him. They'll listen to anyone else and they'll trust anyone else. They'll trust themselves and their own power. They'll trust Egypt and Egypt's power. They'll trust in idols and the power of idols, but they won't trust the true and living God. And so God has said to them, hey, there is a time of judgment coming and it's coming on you because you have rebelled against me. You have failed to listen to me. And that's the basic message of 1 to 39. There are some transformative pictures of God's saving work that he's going to do in you know, chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 28. But most part, it's judgment from God. But here in chapter 40, as you would have heard, the tone changes completely. It's no longer a message of judgment, but a message of comfort. And in chapter 39, it seems that the big threat for the people of Israel is the incoming empire of Babylon. They're on the, on the fence about to invade, and they are the big threat. And Isaiah's writing into his current day situation in chapter 39. But it seems like there's some time that has passed. I want to show you this. It's important to orient us. So open up chapter 39, uh, verse 6. Just flick back a page in your Bibles. Isaiah says to the king Hezekiah, who's the king at the time, he says, Look, the days are coming when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until today will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your descendants who come from you, whom you father, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So there's the threat. The Babylonian Empire is going to come and invade and take you off in exile after they defeat you. Okay, but chapter 40, you get the sense that a significant amount of time has passed. And I actually think that Isaiah is speaking prophetically about a future, a future that is yet to happen and a future that is a word from God to a people who are going to need to hear it in the future. So you pick it up with me in verse 1. It's a message of comfort. He says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I take it here, Isaiah speaking, the hard service is, he's referring to is the time of exile. And so Babylon do take Israel into exile for a number of years. And Isaiah's words here are for a future generation to reflect on and see, hey, God's got a message of comfort for us. Uh, there's the kind of the context of this passage. A tender word of comfort for a people who would have felt God forsaken, would have felt isolated and lonely, would have wondered if there was ever any hope for them in the world. And I think that context is actually helpful because some of us might be feeling that. 
Have you ever felt like you've sinned against God in such a way that you're cut off from him? Or you've been ignoring him for so long that surely he wouldn't want anything to do with you? These words take us to the very heart of who God is. And we see what he offers to those who feel God forsaken and isolated. And what is it that he offers in this passage? He offers his glory through his very presence. He offers himself to a people that feel cut off and God forsaken. You see there in verse 5. He says, And the glory of the Lord will appear, and humanity together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, what's God's promise to a people that were living in exile that felt isolated and God forsaken? It's that he would appear to them. He would appear to a people hurting into this real moment in time and space in history, in human history, in a way where all humanity will be able to see and experience his glory in a tangible way into history. And Isaiah 40, I think this promise is like a prism. It's like a beam of light, which is the promise of God that he will appear with his presence in glory. And it just kind of explodes into the rest of the prophets in the Old Testament and then into the New Testament Gospels. Here's the promise of God that he's going to dwell with his people. He's going to come and be with them, with all of his glory. And it's that glory which makes itself fully known in Jesus. See, John 1 picks up on this theme. It says, Jesus is the word become flesh and dwelt among us. So we see the very glory of God. I think in Jesus we see that this passage in Isaiah is speaking far more than about the comfort of God to a people in exile. But it's actually a promise for us today and for Christians everywhere that God has come and dwelt with his people. His presence is with us. It's this glory that is known in Jesus. In John the Baptist's ministry, we see Isaiah 40, verse 3 quoted, the voice of one who cries out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway. Now that's John's role, speaking about the one who's going to be greater than him, whose sandals he couldn't tie. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus coming into the world. Here we see a message of comfort, not just for Israel, but for us today who feel cut off or isolated or God-forsaken. For those of us who feel like God is distant, like God doesn't care. Here we see actually, no, God's word to us through this passage is that he does care. And he offers comfort through his very presence. It's a glory that first came when Jesus entered the world. It's a glory that each of us who trust Jesus have in our lives by his presence, his spirit at work in our hearts. We know the comfort of what it means to have God with us, don't we? If you trust Jesus, his spirit's in you. And it's a glory that will happen and be revealed in a worldwide event when Jesus returns. Every human that's ever existed will come face to face with the glory of God and deal with the reality of their relationship with God, whether they've accepted him or rejected him. It's the glory that will happen on a worldwide scale. And I think as we start 2024 and we're thinking about goals and plans and dreams and study and work and everything else, isn't it hard for us to keep this at the center? It's so big. It's so important, and yet it just can tend to slip out to the side of our minds and not capture our hearts. But we read this, and we want to not see God as small, but see him for who he truly is, big and glorious. Sometimes our God can be too small. And in verse 6, God gives Isaiah a sermon to say. And Isaiah, he says, you know, cry out. And Isaiah says, what should I cry out? And here's Isaiah's sermon. Verse 6, all humanity is grass. And all its goodness is like the flower of the field. 
The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Now, there's a, a sermon, right? You, imagine if I said, hey, you guys are like grass. You know, it's, uh, that'll preach. Um, but, you know, what, what is Isaiah saying here? I think it's twofold. It's the, it's the finiteness of humanity. We're just like grass. The image that I get is like a dandelion. You know, you pick a dandelion, you, you blow it, and it's, it's just off into the breeze. He's saying that's what we're like as humans. We're here for one moment, gone in the next. That's the kind of the grand scheme of what it is to be human. But God, we see the word of God is contrasted with that. It, it remains forever. Humans are finite, but God is infinite. And, and he wants us to see the contrast here between us and God. And actually, I think we see the workings of the gospel even in this bit of Isaiah 40. See, 1 Peter quotes from these verses, uh, reminding us of both our finiteness, but the glory of God in, chapter, in verse 5 that's going to come and be with us. And he says, all flesh is like grass and all its Glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, and the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. So here's the promise of the gospel in Isaiah 40. The glory of God will appear to finite sinners like you and me. Finite sinners who are just like grass. Sinners who have rebelled against God. But what will God do with that? He will actually forgive and pardon our sins because of Jesus. And then the eternal word takes on flesh and, and actually dies in our place and rises again so that we can have new life. And so for Peter, he looks at this verse and he says, we're all perishable. We're all perishable seed. We're grass. And yet the glory of the Lord and his promise and the gospel is that in Jesus, you can have eternal life. The perishable becomes imperishable because of what Jesus has done, dying in our place. That's the gospel of Isaiah 40. See, the big question of verses 1 to 11 of this chapter is, does God really care? Does the infinite, huge God of the universe, does he care about little old me? Grass, finite, gone in a, in a breath and gone. And, and the shocking, amazing answer of the Bible is, yes, he does. He cares for you intimately. Isn't that such good news? Isaiah thought so. He says in verse 11, Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with strength and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him and his reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. Isn't that good news? Isaiah says, have a look. Behold your God. See him for who he truly is. Isn't he glorious? And what sits at the heart of the glory of God here for Isaiah, it's not just God's strength. It's not just that he's in control and nothing can stand against him. He rules all things. That is true. But for Isaiah, the glory of the Lord is more than that. It's that he cares. It's the, the picture you get is the, the shepherd who picks up a little lamb in their arms and gives them a cuddle. That's how God treats us. He's not just the sovereign ruler who's in control of all things. He's the God who cares for you like a father. Like a shepherd holds that little lamb. Isn't that amazing? 
Isn't that glorious who God is? See, because of Jesus' death in our place, we can have this relationship with God as a father. The father who loves us, who cares for us, who is intimately connected with us. Isn't that amazing? He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He won't leave you hanging. He won't turn his back on you. Whatever tomorrow brings, you can face it because you can know for sure that God cares for you. That he's intimately connected with you in the details of your life. And that will never change. See, we live in a world that promises so much comfort. We live in an age of comfort. But all of those comforts can be taken away. Your job gone in an instant. Your degree, you get an F mark and it's, and it's done. Your house, you know, it floods. Your, your family, you have breakdowns of relationship. All the comforts that you have in your life can be taken in a moment. We live in a world that promises comfort, but it's actually a lie. It can't deliver. But God will not change and he will hold on to you. See, I think for me, the times when I most need to know that this is true are sometimes the times that I find it hardest to remember. I don't know if that's the case for you. When things are really hard in my life, when things happen and I don't know why they've happened, that's the times I need to turn to God, but I just don't want to. Does that, does that resonate with you guys? You just don't want to turn to God. There's moments when it doesn't seem like God cares about your life or that he knows or he's in control of the circumstances that have happened to you. Those are the moments to lean into God, to turn to him, to seek him, to ask him to come and be your comfort and strength. To say even, hey God, in what's happened in my life right now, I don't know what you're doing. I have no idea why you've chosen to do it this way. This sucks. I, I, I don't know how to process any of this, but I trust you. I trust that you are in control and good and that you do care for me. And friends, if you do that, God promises that he will meet you with a metaphorical outstretched arms. He'll pick you up and he'll comfort you with his love. See, your problems may bewilder you and leave you uncertain, but God is totally trustworthy, even in the hard moments of our life. He knows your troubles and he'll never leave you. He's given us his spirit as this guarantee of his glory. It's his presence with us. That's the, com- the spirit is known as the comforter in the Bible. Friends, our problems are big and we need a big God to help us deal with them. And, and when our God is too small, we can't actually turn to him in comfort because we don't think he'll actually be able to deal with our problems. But Isaiah 40 reminds us that God is in control and he does care. We can bring anything to him in prayer, and he will meet us with comfort. See, who else does that for you? What else could be that in your life? Anything else could be taken away. There is nothing else that compares to God. Here's the second point. God's incomparable, the incomparable God. See, if 1 to 11 answers the question, does the infinite God care about little old me? 12 to 26 then asks the question, is there anything that can hold God back? Is there anything that can stop the transformative plans of God in this world and in my life? See, here's the deal. We all build our lives on something. We all have something that sits at the center of our lives. And we choose to build our lives on it. And anything that you build your life on that is not God will fail you. It won't hold up. Anytime you try to limit God, you try to push God to the edges of your life, it won't work for you. Because there is no one like God. Nothing can take the place of God in your life. 
See, God is the only life giver. He's the only constant. He's the only certainty in this world. He's not like anything else. God's not like his creation. He sits above it and, and, and is not of this creation. He's the one who made it all. And so God doesn't depend on the things of this world like we do. And friends, that's really good news for us because it means that we can trust him. See, jump in with me. We're going to look through these verses. We're going to go quite quickly. <clears throat> but what I want you to notice is that the section about who God is is driven by questions. When you see questions in the Bible, they ought to make you stop and pause and think about it. And that's what a question does. And so what Isaiah is doing for us here is he's getting us to ask questions about who God is and then who we are, and then getting us to do a bit of a spot the difference between God and us. And hopefully as we do this, we'll see um, just why God is so incomparable to us. <clears throat> Pick it up with me in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains on a balance and the hills on a scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or who gave him counsel? Who did he consult? Who gave him understanding and taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? So what's the point here? God is so much bigger than us. He's so incomparable to us, so much more glorious than us as humans. Who of us could gather up an ocean in our hands? Who of us could measure the distance between countries with a hand span going across? Only God could. We're not like him. He's so much bigger than us. To us, this universe is, is massive, but God picks up a mountain and moves it to here or moves it to there. He towers over this world. We look up and we go out and see the stars in the sky and we're just overwhelmed by the bigness of the universe. At least I am. But to God, this universe is like a sandpit. He towers over it. He moves mountains like he's you know, building stuff in the sandpit. And he's not just big over this world. He's, notice the verbs that are used of God here. It's measuring. It's marking. It's, it's weighing. It's gathering. See, God isn't just over this universe he knows it with precision and care. This is his universe. He knows every detail of it down to the amount of hairs on your head. He's intimate with the details of his creation. And he knows you. The big God in, over it all knows you intimately and personally. He's precise in his care of this universe. And more than that, he doesn't need anything from us. See, verse 13, you see, we've got, we've got no wisdom we can give God, no direction we can offer him, no counsel that he needs from us. God doesn't work in a committee. God doesn't go on Google and search up the answers. God's not using AI to get the, his essay questions right. He doesn't need knowledge or understanding in any topic. He gives it to us. That's why we turn to the word of God every week as a church to hear what God says, because his voice is the one that matters most. <clears throat> he doesn't need anything from us. See, any God who needs something from you can only burden you. Any God that needs something from you can only burden you. And I think this is what separates the Christian God, the God of the universe, from every other God. See, every other God or religious system has this level of things that you need in order to meet God's standards. The, the, the five-fold path or the seven pillars or the, the, the karma system that you've got to work through. You're all different things that you need to do to be right with God. 
But the Christian God, he needs nothing from you. He doesn't burden you with needs. He offers the free gift of grace in Jesus. Jesus dies for you. He's risen again. And he offers you the grace of eternal life in, in him. He doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't burden you in that way. If your experience of God here tonight is feeling burdened or feeling like you've got to just tick the boxes and get all the right things done so that God will love you, do you really know the true God? Because that's not what your relationship with God is like. He's the God who offers himself freely and gives life to, and, and offers himself in, in a way that is unburdensome to us. He doesn't need anything from us. He's the God in verses 15 to 17 who stands over all the nations of this world. We see there a drop in the bucket, a speck of dust on the scale, nothing before God. All the most amazing constructions and buildings and cities and political powers and economies and military might, all of those things are nothing compared to the power of God. God isn't intimidated by our human constructions and ideas and plans. He's not looking at this world thinking, oh no, where's my place going to be? I don't know what humans are going to do next. Maybe I've lost control. No, God is in control of all things. I've got a set of coffee scales and they measure uh, down to 0.1 grams. I'm a bit of a coffee nerd. Come talk to me later if you love coffee. Um, but here's the deal, right? All of the human might and power and structures and political stuff and the economies that we have, the grandest buildings in this universe, they're, they're less than a coffee bean. They don't even show up on God's scale. He's not intimidated by anything that we could bring in this world. See, ultimately, our biggest problem is that we think we're just like, God's just like us, but a little bit bigger. Uh, you know, you might have thought of this way of God in the past, or you might currently think of God in this way. You think kind of in economies of scale. You go like, oh, there's the ant down the bottom, and you have like, you know, a dog or something, and then you have humans, and you have angels, and they're kind of up there somewhere, and then there's God above all of that. But that's not what God is like. He's in a completely different category to us. He's the creator. We're just his creation. He's so much bigger than us. He's as high above us and more glorious than us and the angels as he is the ant. We are just creatures. This is the God of the universe who sits above everything in his creation. Verse 18, with whom will you compare God? What likeness will you set up for comparison with him? An idol? Something that a smelter casts and a metal worker plates with gold and makes silver chains for? A poor person contributes wood for a pedestal that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over. What will you compare God with? For many of us, our temptation is not to head to the local metal worker and get something smelted. It's not to make something out of wood. Uh, but what it is is we are tempted to trust and center our lives on created things. See, that's what an idol actually is. It's something that you reach for, which is a created thing for identity and purpose and hope, and you center your life around it. Now, these can be good things. They can be bad things as well, but they can be really good things. Getting good grades, having good relationships, your family, a good career. These are all good things, but you can center your life on them and your hope on them. And the problem is that they won't hold up. 
Metal rusts. Wood rots. Money disappears. Your family disowns you. Your house floods. The holiday that you thought was going to be so restful ends up being awful. They don't hold up the things that you put your hope in in this world. The career that promises so much leaves you feeling empty and shallow and tired all the time. Notice in verse 20, the craftsman has to set up an idol in such a way that it won't fall over. He's got to prop it up. If what you're counting on in your life needs to be propped up, how can you expect it to secure you for eternity? It can't. It won't do that. It's a, it's a made thing. It needs, and, and what we do is we make idols and we make them in our image and we make them according to our wants and our needs and our goals. And we have such a small view of things in our lives that our idols are just small and useless. And we end up living for small created idols and centering our lives on them rather than the glory of God. We make God into our own image and we carve him the way that we want to carve him and we put him in our pocket. But that God has no power. That God can't hold you up. It needs to be held up by you. For some of us, we trust Jesus. We've been following God for quite some time. But we can do this too by not seeking after God and having him at the center, but by using God to get what we really want. We really want that that good thing or community or a sense of purpose or to feel loved and secure. And, And those are all good things, but we don't want God. God's just the means to an end. And so we set up an idol of this created thing or this uh, thing which is not God itself. And it won't last. It won't hold up. If that's you, your God is too small. See, we need the real deal. We need to see God for who he truly is so we can center our lives on him. Isaiah drives the point home for us. He invites us to taste and see the real God. And let me tell you, until you are fed up with idols... Until you have experienced that they have disappointed you, that they will not hold up, you won't turn to God. But what Isaiah wants us to see is that they won't. And so do turn to God. It's like going from chicken nuggets to a gourmet restaurant. You know, I don't hate chicken nuggets. I had them for dinner last night with my kids. But idols should leave you with a bad taste in your mouth compared to the real deal. Compared to the gourmet, you know, three-star, three-hat restaurant. What idol in your life do you need to spit out tonight? As you enter 2024, what idol in your life do you need to kick aside and decide tonight that I'm not going to center my life on that thing? That thing might be good, but I'm not going to put all of my hope there. I'm going to put it in Jesus. That thing might be worthwhile, but if I build my life on it, it will only let me down. And so I'm going to spit it out and kick it aside and come back to God and see him as the one who is truly worth centering my life on. See verse 22, he's the one enthroned above the earth. He rolls out the heavens like taking a tent out of the bag. In verse 23, he's, all the human powers and rules are nothing. He blows on them and they are gone like grass. In 25 and 26, he's created every star and knows each one by name and upholds them in the sky with his strength. See, God wants us to see the world the way that he sees it. Not the way that is reported about in the news not the way that it's talked about on social media, not the way that your friends speak about it on campus or at your workplace. No, he wants us to see his world his way. The Babylonians, where the people of Israel would have been exiled when they would have been reflecting on this message, 
They were astrologers and they believed that the stars had this kind of divine power to control our lives. That, that the, you look to the stars and it kind of it shows you where your destiny is. But God takes us outside and he gets us to look up and see the, the glory of the stars. And he says, I control them. I made them. They're nothing compared to me in my power. I rule over them and I rule over you. There is no king, no government, no power, nothing in this world that even comes close to the incomparable God. I don't know about you, but I can't even run my own life. I make plans and they fail. I, I want to do something and then I get sick and my, my health kicks out and my plans and my dreams that I'm reaching for, I don't, I don't have control over any of it. I can't control my own life. You can't control your life. We're so small in this universe. And yet God, he's big in this universe. And not just big in a macro sense, but he controls and is intimately caring for you in the details of your life. You can't control your life, but God can. And so let God be God. Our idols, they are small and brutal. And we put our hope in them, they'll fail. But God, he is huge and tender. And you put your hope in him, and there is a place where you can have trust and comfort. There is the one who's in control, who cares for you. You don't need to prop up God. And so you can trust him. You can turn to him. You don't have to do things for him. You can come to him and trust that he's God and let him be God. He's got you. He's holding you in his arms. He's the God of comfort and control. And so where does this leave us? Where does this leave us, having considered for the last half an hour who God is? Point three, it's simple. It leaves us with the question, will you trust him? Will you trust God? Have you seen him clearly tonight? There's only one verse attributed to the people of God in Isaiah 40. It's in verse 27 there you can see. Jacob, why do you say, and Israel, why do you assert? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my claim is ignored by my God. Given who God is, given who he's shown himself to be in Isaiah 40, here's the question for us. Will you trust him? Here's the question for Isaiah that he asked those people. Why, why would you say that your way is hidden from the Lord? Why would you say that God doesn't care about your situation, that he doesn't know about it, that he's not in control of it? Why would you say that when you've seen who God is? How could you think that God is powerless to act in the world when you've seen him for all of his glory? He towers over everything else in this world. Verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. See, this is who God is. He's unlimited. He lacks nothing. There's no limit to him. He never runs out of strength. There's nothing that we can do that will drain God. God's not like a battery. You know, sometimes we think of God as a super big battery. And he just he, he drains, but really slowly. But after a while, he'll get fed up with me. If I keep needing things from him. But God's not like that. He's unlimited. He is life. And so we can turn to him and ask things of him and pray to him and come to him for comfort and, and seek him. And he's unlimited. He'll never let us down. He'll never give up. He's infinite, and it will never drain him in the slightest. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if every single person in this room here tonight 
had one person in the room and we all went and told that person our problems and our failings and our guilt and our shame. Can you imagine how, if that was Michael, how do you, Michael would just collapse. He couldn't even do that for 10 people, let alone all of us. But God does it for each of us. He's infinite. You can't drain him. You can't overwhelm him. He lacks nothing. He gives strength to the faint, verse 29, and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. Every created thing wears out. It all breaks down. It all becomes exhausted. Even you, young person in your 20s who feels like you could never go, go all day, you'll get tired. But God's strength is tireless. God's wisdom is unlimited. And so God's plans are therefore inevitable because he's in control and they're good. They're inevitable and good because of who he is. And so what do we do? We're left with this moment where we say, what do we do when it feels like God's plans are neither good and that God's not in control? What do we do? We trust in the Lord for our strength. We turn to him and and admit that we're weak, we're human, we're fallible, we're grass. And trust that he is the one who's in control. And he's the one who wants to comfort us. And he's doing something about the brokenness in this world. And he's going to bring all things to a point of resurrection and new life for those who trust him. See, the word here for trust, it's actually the Hebrew word for wait. If you've got an old school translation, your Bible will say, those who wait on the Lord. And I think it has this sense of looking forward, of of, of waiting eagerly, expectantly, with hope. And, And it's true for us today, isn't it? See, while God doesn't promise to fix your situation in your life, he doesn't promise to just make all your problems disappear and and magically become all right. That's not the promise of God. But he does promise that he's going to do away with, with all sin and brokenness and pain and sickness and death and suffering. And he does promise that you'll get to spend the rest of eternity with him, in his glory, in his presence, in enjoying the God of the universe. That's the promise of being a Christian. And it's yours if you trust Jesus, if you're holding on to him. See, waiting on the Lord is both a complete dependence on God and saying, I trust your timing, Lord God. It's a declaration that even when my circumstances don't feel like it, I know that God will not let me down. And if that's true, you can live tomorrow come what may. Anything could be taken away in your life. Any good thing that you have, you could lose it tomorrow. And you would still be able to trust God because of his work on the cross and his promise of the new creation. That's the God that we live and we trust. And that's what it means to trust in the Lord for your strength. To depend on him, not on created things. To turn to him, not to created things. To get your strength, not from within yourself, not from other things in this world, but from God. Friends, isn't it time tonight to throw off your small view of God? To see him in all of his glory as Isaiah 40 shows him to be. And let him be God and center your lives on him. I'm going to pray that we do that together. Father God, just 30 minutes of thinking about you in your glory and we're just 
awestruck. You tower above this world. You're so big and in control. Uh, uh, Most glorious things as humans don't even measure on your scale. You're so in control, Lord God. And yet you're also caring for us. You know us. You know us intimately. And you care for us. We pray that you might help us to know that you are both the God who's in control and the God who cares. We pray when we don't understand the circumstances of our lives, when we're in suffering, when our problems seem big, that you would point us to see who you truly are in all of your glory and goodness and care. We pray that you might help us to live as people centered on you for your glory. We pray that you would help us to kick off idols and throw them down this year and live for you in every area of our life. We do it trusting that you are good, that you're in control and that you love us. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.